I know you feel these are the worst of times. I do believe it's true. When people lock their doors and they hide inside, rumor has it it's the end of paradise. But I know if this world just passes us by, baby, I know you wouldn't have to cry. No, no. Because the best of times when I'm alone with you, some rain, some shine. Come on, guys. We'll, we'll make this a world for two. Our memories of yesterday will last a lifetime. We'll take the best. We'll forget the rest. And someday we'll find these are the best of times. Yeah, I know the headlines read these are the worst of times. I do believe it's true. I mean, I feel so helpless, like a boat against the tide. I wish the summer winds could bring back paradise. But I know if the world turned upside down, baby, I know you would always be around. Because the best of times are when I'm alone with you, just live streaming, talking about the fundamental issues of life. Right? Some rain, some shine. We'll make this a world for two. When I'm alone with you, these are the best of times. Everything's all right. Right? Did you see my epic stream on how riding the bus can save us from climate change? Now, buses get maligned. Now, buses get you know, made fun of in movies. And in TV shows that like only losers, right? Only losers ride the bus. That, uh, oh, why are you riding the bus? Did, you, did your car break down? Did you lose your job? Are you broke? Are you, are you desperate? Is your world falling apart? Well, well, I say these are the best of times. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. Sometimes you wonder just how filthy and dishonest our news media are. You'll be in the shower and you'll think they're bad, but how bad are they? Well, here's one measure of their badness. You can try this at home. Ask yourself, is any news organization you know of so corrupt that it's willing to hurt you on behalf of its biggest advertisers? Anyone who do that is obviously Pablo Escobar level corrupt and should not be trusted. What would that look like when you do that, that level of corruption? Well, imagine that the Trump administration had made it mandatory for American citizens to buy my pillow. That's one of Fox News' biggest advertisers. Imagine the administration declared that if you didn't rush out and buy at least one my pillow, and then at least another booster pillow, you would not be allowed to eat out. You couldn't re-enter your own country. You couldn't have a paying job. My pillow, they told you with a straight face, was the very linchpin of our country's public health system. Now imagine as they told you that, that Fox, as a news organization, endorsed it, amplified the government's message. Imagine if Fox News attacked anyone who refused to buy my pillow as an ally of Russia, as an enemy of science. And then imagine that Fox kept up those libelous attacks, even as evidence mounted that my pillow caused heart attacks, fertility problems, and death. If Fox News did that, what would you think of Fox News? Would you trust us? Of course you wouldn't. You would know that we were liars. Thank heaven Fox News never did anything like that. But the other channels did. The other channels took hundreds of millions of dollars from big pharma companies, and then they shilled for their scam. Okay, that's ridiculous. We're not going there. All right, uh, no, no, we're not going to play, you know, Tucker's rants against uh, vaccines. Vaccines are wonderful by and large. All right, seatbelts are wonderful. Sometimes some people die in accidents because they're wearing a seatbelt when they would live if they weren't wearing a seatbelt. But overall... Seatbelts are a good thing. They keep people safer. All right, uh, wearing a helmet when you're biking, all right? Generally speaking, it's a good thing. 
There are probably some exceptions where it's a it's a bad thing. But uh, all this nonsense, you know, saying, oh, it's so evil that, you know, people are encouraged to, to get uh, vaccinated against COVID, right? Don't, don't have any time for that. All right, what do I have time for? So are these the best of times? Are these the, the worst of times? Right. Terrific article here in the New York Times. Oh, I thought I saw this article in the New York Times. Bloody heck. Let me find that article. In movies and in TV, like riding the bus is shown as like just being a total loser. That's totally unfair, man. Like our social media is just trying to give this you know, unfair impression of riding the bus when it can be just a perfectly pleasant, perfectly happy experience. It's an opportunity to love and to receive love. And to share your life, your joys, your vulnerabilities with your fellow Los Angelinos. I think we get to share so much in common. And together, bros, if we ride the bus, we can overcome climate change. Right? Better buses are the key to overcoming climate change. I just read about this in Scientific American. Powerful, powerful live stream from a, a few minutes ago. The advantages of... <laughs> <laughs> riding the bus man could save us it could save us from climate change oh okay so it looks like tucker has moved off uh vaccines i just here we go topic most of us don't know much about because the details are not reported it was a year ago that every media outlet in the united states from usa today to the new york times told you it was a dangerous conspiracy theory to believe the u.s government had ever funded secret bio labs in ukraine the idea was ridiculous in fact, it was Russian disinformation. And then one day, in sworn testimony, Toria Newland of the State Department accidentally admitted that it was true. Yes, she said, there are many secret biolabs in Ukraine. And, quote, we are now, in fact, quite concerned that Russian troops, Russian forces, may be seeking to gain control of them. Wait a second, you may be wondering. Why does the U.S. government maintain secret biolabs in a primitive country like Ukraine? Why not Austria? Why Ukraine? And why didn't we dismantle and remove these secret bio labs when the war with Russia started? Nobody ever explained that. This show was attacked for asking the question. Now we have learned that actually it is far worse than just bio labs. Not only has the Biden administration been maintaining these labs in Ukraine in the middle of a war, it also has, quote, sensitive nuclear technology in Ukraine as well. And no, we're not making that up. They admitted it today. Watch. While Ukrainian staff are still operating the Zaporizhia a nuclear power plant, it does fall under the control of Russian armed forces and is currently being managed by Russia's state-owned uh, uh, nuclear energy firm, Rosatom. So this is a significant concern. And essentially, in this letter that has been reviewed by CNN, sent by the U.S. Department of Energy to Rosatom, the U.S. government has essentially warned Moscow not to touch the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant because of this sensitive American nuclear technology at the plant. So many questions here, but we'll begin with the biggest one. What exactly is, quote, sensitive American nuclear technology? Sensitive American nuclear technology? And with the biggest one, probably not to produce energy. No one in the media is going to ask that question. But if it's in the middle of Ukraine, in the middle of a war, it stands to reason this sensitive American nuclear technology has 
military applications. In other words, these are nuclear weapons. What else could they be? We'll stop speculating there. But take three steps back. This is all so crazy and so reckless, it is hard to believe it's happening. Here you have a Democratic president gone completely off the rails, completely, with existentially dangerous consequences, prosecuting a war that can only hurt the United States, a war with no upside. It is awful to watch, but it is not without precedent. Something similar happened 55 years ago in 1968, another remarkably turbulent and ugly year in American history that has many parallels to this. That spring, in March of 1968, Robert F. Kennedy Sr., the former attorney general, the brother to the slain president, announced his candidacy against the incumbent, fellow Democrat Lyndon Johnson. And the overriding issue then, as now, was a pointless war then in progress. This is from Robert Kennedy Sr.'s announcement. I am announcing today my candidacy for the presidency of the United States. I run to seek new policies, policies to end the bloodshed in Vietnam and in our cities, policies to close the gaps that now exist between black and white, between rich and poor, between young and old, in this country and around the rest of the world. I run for the presidency because I want the Democratic Party and the United States of America to stand for hope instead of despair, for reconciliation of men instead of the growing risk of world war. To be clear, Robert F. Kennedy was not against all war on principle. He was against that war because he believed, with a lot of evidence, that it was not helping the United States in any way. But you weren't allowed to say that. He did. Party bosses hated him for that, but rank-and-file Democrats loved him. They put pictures of his face in their homes like icons. In the end, they named a football stadium after him in Washington. That was more than half a century ago. He was, of course, murdered in June of that year. But now Kennedy's son is embarking on a similar challenge to his own party and for similar reasons. Robert F. Kennedy Jr. announced today that he is running for president in the primary against Joe Biden. Here's part of what he said. Uh, okay, enough of, enough of that nonsense. I finally found the New York Times article, guys. All right, it's by a fellow at the London School of Economics. He is writing a history of global crises. His name is Jerome Roos. We don't know what will happen next, right? So you may think these are the best of times. You may think these are the worst of times. You're trying to figure it out. Well, here's the answer. New York Times, we don't know what will happen next. So ours is an age of upheaval, right? There's an ominous mood reigning over the earth. We've got economic turmoil. We have social unrest. We have Black Lives Matter. We have fascism, political instability. The world has been cast adrift. Right. The the what well, the best lack or conviction. Right. Things are falling apart. The center cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood dimmed tide is loosed and everywhere. The ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack or conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, 
a shape with lion body and the head of man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun. It's moving its slow thighs while all about it reel shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Right, that's the poem, The Second Coming by W.B. Yeats. Okay, very classy here, classing up the show. Right, do you feel like you're on a rudderless ship in a terrible storm? So we now face unprecedented challenges. Why do we face unprecedented challenges? Because we've changed and the world around us has changed. You can never step into the same river twice. So climate change rapidly altering the conditions of life on our planet. And did you know that 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 10,000 years ago, 10 million years ago, climate change was also altering the conditions of life on our planet because the climate has always been changing. Tensions over Ukraine and Taiwan have revived the specter of a conflict between nuclear superpowers. Breakneck developments in AI are raising serious concerns about an AI-induced global catastrophe. Uh, what was it about... Uh, experimentation in in bio labs oh what, what's that phrase where they like spike protein stuff uh they do you know experiments with spike proteins you know un unleashing deadly viruses on the world all right this is where we need new perspectives we need to make sense of this rapidly changing world right are you able to look outside and see dead people or do you just see trees of green and skies of blue and crying children, and you think, what a beautiful world. Well, you're just obviously not spiritually advanced enough to see the apocalypse everywhere. Are you stuck in some kind of progress narrative? Are you maintaining that this is the best of all possible worlds? Right? Both views are equally forceful in their claims. The truth is, none of us know where things are headed. The crisis of our times has blown the future right open. So where are we? We are in a liminal space. That means between, right? Between one space and another. And guess what? We're always in a liminal space, all right? <laughs> We're always in between. So we have two visions, the best of times, the worst of times, diametrically opposed, but they're really two sides of the same coin. Both perspectives emphasize one set of trends over another. So the optimist can point to all these statistics on how poverty is going down, the world's becoming a better place, and the pessimists cling to the worst-case scenarios. So it's easy to understand the appeal of such one-sided tales. We prefer to impose clear and linear narratives on a chaotic and unpredictable reality. So I believe that. So that's why I'm not terribly definitive in many of the things I say. I, I recognize that there's so many variables that I can only kind of get a glimmering of the implications of, of some variables, but the world is far more complex than I can possibly grasp. So to truly grasp the complex nature of our time, we need to embrace its most terrifying aspect, its fundamental openness, right? It's this radical uncertainty that gives rise to anxiety. So what's the name for this experience? Liminality, right? It comes from the Latin word for threshold, refers to the sense of disorientation that arises during a rite of passage. When we are betwixt and between, when we are neither here nor there, when we're in a state of suspension. So you can raise your social status by employing the word 
liminal and liminality. Guys, we are in an interregnum. The old world is dying. The new world is struggling to be born. We're in an epochal shift. These epochal shifts, folks, they're fraught with danger. But for all their destructive potential, they are also full of possibility. Right? These great upheavals in world history, you can see them as genuine signs of vitality that clear the ground of discredited ideas and decaying institutions. So all these crises, they're just uh, the new nexus of growth. So it is time for us to embrace this Janus-faced nature of our times. That means two-faced, right? Reality is once frightening yet generative. Did you know that reality was generative? That's pretty awesome. So no longer can we conceive of history as a straight line, either tending up toward improvement or down toward collapse. Crises can be devastating. They can also drive history, progress, and catastrophe. These binary opposites are joined at the hip. Together, they are engaged in an endless dance of creative destruction, forever breaking new ground and spiraling out into the unknown. Wow, there should be a song about that. Here, I've, I've uh, composed an ode for the didgeridoo to liminality. Whew. Hope you appreciated that. I was working all day on that. Oh. Now, mate, you're, you're probably wondering. I know what you're wondering. I can read your mind. Can I read your mind? Yes, I can read your mind. You're saying 40. What does Vox have to say? The doomers are wrong, guys, about humanity's future and its past. Vox. The necessity of progress. Right, things are getting much, much better. about humanity's future and its past. The necessity of progress. Written by Brian Walsh for the highlight by Vox. Narrated by Johnny Heller. If I wanted to convince you of the reality of human progress, of the fact that we as a species have advanced materially, morally, and politically over our time on this planet, I could quote you chapter and verse from a thick stack of development statistics. I could tell you that a little more than 200 years ago, nearly half of all children born died before they reached their 15th birthday, and that today it's less than 5% globally. I could tell you that in pre-industrial times, starvation was a constant specter and life expectancy was in the 30s at best. I could tell you that at the dawn of the 19th century, barely more than one person in 10 was literate, while today that ratio has been nearly reversed. I could tell you that today is, on average, the best time to be alive in human history. But that doesn't mean you'll be convinced. In one 2017 Pew poll, a plurality of Americans, people who, perhaps more than anywhere else, are heirs to the benefits of centuries of material and political progress, reported that life was... So I think uh, Steve Bannon is sponsoring Robert F. Kennedy Jr.'s run for president. So I think Steve Bannon and other Republican strategists think it will take support away from Joe Biden and the Democrats. Uh-oh, dirty tricks. More Republican dirty tricks. Scary, scary stuff. 50 years ago than it is today. A 2015 survey of thousands of adults in nine rich countries found that 10% or fewer believed that the world was getting better. A 
on the internet, a strange nostalgia persists for the supposedly better times before industrialization, when ordinary people supposedly worked less and life was allegedly simpler and healthier. They didn't, and it wasn't. Looking backward, we imagine a halcyon past that never was. Looking forward, it seems to many as if, in the words of young environmental activist Greta Thunberg, the world is getting more and more grim every day. So it's boom times for doom times. But the apocalyptic mindset that has gripped so many of us not only understates how far we've come, but how much further we can still go. The real story of progress today is its remarkable expansion to the rest of the world in recent decades. In 1950, life expectancy in Africa was just 40. Today, it's past 62. Meanwhile, more than 1 billion people have moved out of extreme poverty. Whoa, whoa. Come on. Benefit of electricity or live in states still racked by violence and injustice isn't so much an indictment of progress as it is an indication that there is still more low hanging fruit to harvest. The world hasn't become a better place for nearly everyone who lives on it because we wished it so. The astounding economic and technological progress that has been made over the past 200 years is the result of deliberate policies, a drive to invent and innovate, one advance building upon another. And as our material condition improved, so, for the most part, did our morals and politics, not as a side effect, but as a direct consequence. It's simply easier to be good when the world isn't zero-sum. Which isn't to say that the record of progress is one of unending wins. Yeah, guys, it's a lot easier to be good when you stop looking at the world as zero sum. Like, can't, can't we just, you know, cooperate and make things better together? Okay, Half Galician, you are here. You have my phone number. You can call in. And tonight's the night, Half Galician, that will make history. Tonight's the night we will embody strength and honor. Okay, scary stuff here in the New York Times. What Republicans are doing is one of the odd and scary things about American politics. This is Thomas Edsel's weekly column. Right? Did you know that uh, democracies are providing the rope to hang themselves from Turkey to Hungary, from India to the United States? Authoritarian leaders are gaining power under the protective cloak of free elections. Wow. Republicans have gone further than ever before in using their overrepresentation in state legislatures to shift powers to those legislatures away from office holders in Democratic-led cities. Wow, can you imagine that elected Republican representatives are going out there and they are trying to maximize their power? This is absolutely unprecedented. When has this ever occurred before? Like, when have politicians ever used their overrepresentation in state legislatures to try to seize power? This is scary, right? Republicans lost the presidential election in 2020. They did worse than expected in 2022. But they did not abandon the leaders and policies that produced these results. They have doubled down on even more extreme and broadly unpopular leaders and policies from Trump to abortion to guns. Does this mean that normal politics have been replaced by extreme polarization and Factional identity politics. Uh, are the extremes growing stronger? 
they draining the center so if republicans become a minority to exercise control of the government now it's great when other minorities dominate government okay when blacks have disproportionate influence in government then that would be a wonderful thing if gays would have disproportionate influence in government or in the entertainment industry or in the fashion industry or you know other parts of the world that's a good thing so when minorities they seek to exercise dominance that's a good thing except when it's republicans that are doing that so if enough voters are deeply anxious or frightened of some real or imagined threat right are you guys frightened about socialism or massive immigration crime threats to your religion the transgender takeover right you may well vote for someone who promises to stand up to those threats even if that person has no regard for preserving our democracy no regard for the rights and freedoms of those seen as enemies right if such a leader is elected and he gets his party to control all parts of government then turns the government into a weapon to attack their enemies right no laws or other organizations can stop them i mean democrats have never acted this way did franklin delano roosevelt and the democrats ever act this way did uh, linda baines johnson and the dems ever act this way did barack obama and the democrats ever act this way did the democrats under joe biden ever try to throw their weight around so should the republicans gain control of the house senate and the presidency in 2024 you know what they're going to do they're going to impose their views this is awful this is scary stuff so there are two distinct mechanisms apparently involved in overturning democracy one is you vote in the, the wrong party you vote in republicans and if you make the mistake of voting in republicans guys you're overturning democracy just imagine if the american government was run for the benefit of the majority of americans imagine the tyranny that would be imposed by this sort of majoritarian government just just imagine that uh, america was run for, for the benefit of my god uh people with with a say european or christian background the, the majority of the country C can you imagine the terror the the tyranny the oppression that would happen if say the united states of america were run like uh, hindu india so hindus are 80 percent of the population in india but only in the last uh, 10 15 years have they taken political power so it was considered unclassy for the majority to exercise power in india just as it is considered unclassy for the majority to exercise power in the united states right minorities are supposed to exercise power in the united states unless those minorities are christian or white or republican then it's a bad thing but if they are sacred minorities if they are black or jewish or gay or transgendered or oppressed women of color then it's a wonderful thing if minorities have disproportionate influence so can you imagine the terror the united states would experience or england would experience just imagine if england were run for the benefit of the english my god what a frightening concept just imagine if canada was run for the benefit of the majority of canadians i mean sounds like fascism to me just imagine if france was run for the benefit of the french just imagine if germany was run for the benefit of the germans i mean this is just like hitler all over again this is nazi germany 2.0 
Just imagine if Australia were run for the benefit of the majority of Australians. I mean, can you imagine that kind of evil, that tyranny? It's absolutely frightening. Thank God the New York Times is warning us. All right, It's not just Stormy Daniels who's standing between us and a total fascist takeover. It's Stormy Daniels and the New York Times. All right, So what if the Republican Party controls the House of Representatives, the Senate, the judiciary, and the presidency? Right, And then what if they disregard the principles of our democracy, the independence of officials? Right, What if they replaced bureaucrats with people who wanted to execute on the president and the representative's will? Like, what if we got bureaucracies and judges and law enforcement and government programs and just a whole orientation towards delivering a higher quality of life for the majority of the people? Can you imagine what a, a fascist state that would look like? if we started running our, our society for the benefit of the majority? Like, what if we started putting a priority on taxpayers rather than tax leeches? Like, what if we started orienting government policy towards re rewarding people who pay taxes and reducing incentives going towards people who take far more in government services than they pay in? Like, what if we started remaking society so that we rewarded pro-social behavior and we punished anti-social behavior. Like, can you imagine the terror that would result if we started locking up super predators, if we, say, encourage the police to enforce the law and then punish people who break the law and, you know, make our society dirtier and viler? J just imagine you could just start, uh, you know, walking the streets at night you know, all, all over America. My God, what a, what a horror show. For a heroic act caught on video, we're gonna put him on video after the break. He joins us. Oh, that's a high-speed chase. Yes. That's a high-speed chase. Whoa, high-speed chase. Oh yeah, so in, in America, right, uh, all these different people have been shot for knocking on the wrong door. So uh, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, if we had an America run for the benefit of the majority of Americans, if we had an American with adequate America with adequate levels of law enforcement, if we had an America where when people committed crimes, they were punished, I suspect, I'm just going to go out on a limb here, I suspect that we would have more social trust, that there would be less anxiety. Right? Anxiety is when you're in fight or flight mode and it's not appropriate to the situation. Like for anything good to happen, people have to feel safe. So I'm just curious, off the top of your head, do you think people would feel more safe if the police were encouraged to enforce the law or less safe? Do you think people would feel more safe if rapists and murderers and people you know, walking around with illegal possession of firearms were caught and punished according to the law or would you feel less safe if that happened? I would feel more safe. Like, I would like to see police, you know, arresting people committing violent crimes. I would like to see stop and frisk all over the country. I would like to see people who are illegally carrying firearms arrested and put in prison. I would like to see, you know, felons who illegally possess firearms, you know, put in prison for a long time. I would like to see rapists and torturers and 
murderers and people who inflict grievous bodily harm put in prison for a long, long time. That's, that's my vision. But uh, I suspect if we did that, right, if we simply did that, if that's all we did was that we enforced the law, locked up super predators, we would have Gan Eden. We would have a Garden of Eden in America. We would have a dramatic reduction in violent crime. We would have a, an accompanying increase in social trust. And you would have far fewer examples of people shooting people who simply knocked on the wrong door. Hey, why do people shoot people who knock on the wrong door? Because they have disproportionate amounts of anxiety. So why do people have disproportionate amounts of anxiety? Why are they so frightened? Well, part of it is that there is you know, various members of the news media on both the right and left who get ratings and who get a feeling of importance by telling you that we're living in a civil war, that America is just becoming like uh, Nazi Germany and Soviet Union or it's getting a fascist takeover. Right? With all that kind of talk and you listen to it, you take that seriously, you're going to have more anxiety. What happens when you have more anxiety? You are more likely to get triggered to just uh, start blasting away. So yeah, I am for an America that rewards the pro-social and punishes the anti-social, even if it has a disparate impact. I know that's a, a pretty controversial thing to, to say, but I suspect that if we start rewarding taxpayers and start discouraging people who simply leech on the system, abuse the system, you know, suck the system dry without contributing much back to society, I suspect we'd have high levels of social trust we get along better with each other. We would feel less anxiety. We would feel safer, right? And we wouldn't have such extreme, disproportionately extreme, you know, violent reactions to an unexpected stimulus, such as a stranger knocking on your door or driving up your, your driveway. These things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen because we're having a massive increase in violent crime that was brought about by our elites, right? It wasn't brought about primarily by the scum of the earth. Our elites set forth to discourage the police from doing their job. They stigmatized and attacked and discouraged and disciplined police who did their job, told police to stop enforcing the law, stop making traffic stops. As a result, you've had a dramatic rise in traffic fatalities, in pedestrian fatalities, in murder, in violent crime. We've had an increase in dislocation, a decrease in social trust. So people are going to be triggered, right? Nothing good happens until someone feels safe. That that's true if it's on a date or if you're sitting at home, walking down the street, riding a bus, right? You're not going to open up to strangers, right? You're not going to deal flexibly with a challenging situation unless you feel safe, right? I'm standing before you right now and my neck is free. Do you see my, my forehead just crinkled in, in worry? No. No, I'm feeling free and easy, right? I, I'm not being uh, triggered because... Uh, I do the Alexander technique. Killed, the more you look at the details, and we have, the more clear it is that somebody got inside the most secure federal lockup in our most populated city and murdered Jeffrey Epstein. But who? Well, the Department of Justice is in charge of finding out who, of course, and they say they have had an investigation for almost four years. So periodically we reach out to DOJ and ask, how's the Epstein investigation going? <laughs> We called today again. They told us they'd complete and publish their report soon. 
We also thought it'd be worth reaching out to the NYPD. We wanted to know what was said in any 911 calls from the federal lockup in New York on the day that Epstein was found dead. NYPD has just turned over one of those calls to us, and it reveals the truth. Here it is. Oh, just kidding. We can't play that 911 call for you because it's been deleted. Really? Just like the videotape. Why? Because we are, quote, well past the 12-month retention period. So it looks like the NYPD deleted the recordings of 911 calls from the jail. So we thought, well, how about the FBI? We called over to the FBI to say, do you have any 911 recordings from the jail, from the federal lockup? And we got no response. No one seems interested anymore, but we're interested. Tyler Morrell is a pizza delivery man for Coco's Pizza in Aston in Pennsylvania. He was making delivery recently when he noticed a high-speed chase unfolding right behind him. That's when he stepped in to help officers make an arrest. Watch. Oh, that's a high-speed chase. Yeah. That's a high-speed chase. Yeah, Holy smokes, Tyler Burrell, our employee of the month, joins us. Okay, that's pretty cool. So anyway, back to this threatened majoritarian takeover of the United States. You know, there's no bigger threat to democracy than majority rule. I mean, majority rule is just going to be the end of, of democracy, right? Can you think of anything more anti-democratic than majority rule? Very scary stuff, right? Back to the New York Times. Uh, sadly, none of the institutions of democracy can uh, prevent majority rule. Did you realize that? Our institutions, guys, cannot prevent majority rule, the arbitrary and autocratic rule of the majority. The United States has so many safeguards for minority rights that it is conceivable that a minority party could obtain complete control of all levers of government. Well, it depends on which major minority party, right, whether this is good or bad. But uh, a determined effort to twist and benefit these various opportunities and rules means that a party that represents a minority of the people can, in the United States, control the House majority and the presidency, enabling an oppressive government restricting freedom and ruling autocratically and imposing the goals and beliefs of a minority on an unwilling majority. So if Republicans follow the rules of the game, right, but they're simply more adept about it, just like, I'll admit it, the Democrats were more adept at changing voter voting rules for the 2020 election, right? They reduced the chances of a ballot being ruled invalid because they knew most of their voters would be voting mail-in. So they multiplied the ease with which you can do mail-in balloting. They decreased the ways that you would not count a mail-in ballot. They you know, got out their vote. They discouraged Republican votes. They played the system more effectively, and that's a wonderful thing. But if uh, Republicans would do, do the same thing and take power, then that would be awful. Right? You'd have an oppressive government restricting freedom and ruling autocratically unlike when the Democrats do it.
So what we need here is horizontal accountability. Have you engaged in any good horizontal accountability lately? What's important is that at each step of your path along the way to horizontal accountability, that you ask for permission. All right. Don't just take horizontal you know, accountability uh, for granted. Right. Horizontal accountability. You need institutional checks and balances that enable public officials to hold each other accountable. And vertical accountability, ways for citizens to hold public officials accountable, such as elections or popular mobilization. Well, guess what? If you were to have majority rule, you'd have increased social trust, and American citizens might have the feeling that the American government was on their side rather than the enemy. Like when you fly back into the United States from a foreign country, uh, you feel like you're treated as the enemy. I was just struck when I was back in Australia, the difference between how Australians and, and Americans view the government. Now, uh, Australians and Americans both have some, some knee-jerk skepticism of the, the government. But in Australia, 80% of the public feels that for all its flaws, the government is on their side. So in, in the United States, probably 40% of the population, 50% of the population might think the government is on their side. But if the government really were to be on the side of the majority of the population, such as by you know, looking out for the best interests of taxpayers and discouraging the rape of America by you know, social welfare leeches, uh, you'd have increased social trust and you would have less corruption. So apparently democratic procedures can enable would-be authoritarians to undermine both horizontal and vertical accountability under the cloak of democratic legitimacy. So let me just rephrase this. So majority rule, guys, majority rule can enable would-be authoritarians to undermine horizontal and vertical accountability. So democratic regimes less likely than in the past to be overthrown in a sudden violent burst until they are. Right. So you know why uh, modern democratic regimes haven't been overthrown by a sudden violent burst? Because the regimes have been more powerful than those trying to overthrow them because the regimes, you know, offer uh, more opportunities or better hope for the people who have power. So if, if democracies get to a situation where an increasing level of the population thinks that they'd be better off with a different form of government, all right, it's not laid out by the will of heaven that uh, democratic procedures as we have them in 2023 are just you know ineluctably good right people want government that meets their needs if they start seeing the government as the enemy they will look for alternatives so how do authoritarian leaning politicians gain the power to elude the institutional restraints designed to maintain democracy right so how do we get the majority of the people into power, right? And and then keep them handcuffed, keep them under control so that they don't start ruling? Like, how do we maintain this current regime without allowing the majority to take over? So an important feature of populism is the belief in majoritarian conceptions of democracy. Can you think of anything more anti-democratic than uh, a majoritarian conception of democracy can you think of anything more primitive right i mean populism has this naive but 
deeply dark and sinister belief in a majoritarian conception of democracy. Just imagine that the majority of the people can vote in the government that they want, and then that government primarily caters to their needs without being constrained by the horizontal and vertical checks of an elite. My God, just imagine if uh, majorities start doing what they want. Can you imagine the hellscape that would result in modern first world countries if majorities are able to do what they want? Can you imagine think anything more anti-democratic than majorities getting to do what they want? So here's the New York Times. This majoritarian conception of democracy, right? It is the late motif, right? It is the pattern of virtually all democratic backsliding episodes, all right? A government of the people, by the people, and for the people, right? That is the example uberalis, the prime example of all democratic backsliding episodes. Government of the people, by the people, for the people, that's anti-democratic. The will of the people is being thwarted by an elite. Read the deep state that must be purged, right? That's the primitive populist conception, right? They, they, they think that the will of the people is being thwarted by an elite. Now, New York Times simultaneously maintains, yes, the will of the people is being thwarted by an elite, by a deep state, but that's good. It's just wrong for populists to point that out, but it's good for people on the left to point that out. So the definition of the people does not refer to everyone, right? It does not refer to, say, people who aren't here legally, right? It doesn't refer to non-citizens, and it doesn't favor oppressed minorities. So one common characteristic of democratic backsliding is that it mutes the ability of the public to perceive what is happening in front of its eyes. People don't see what's transpiring because autocrats lie and distort the truth. Bro, people weren't born yesterday, right? We have evolved highly efficient and effective mechanisms to detect when people are trying to manipulate us against our interests, right? We did not evolve to be gullible. All right, we got more academics here talking about competitive authoritarian regime, all right? A regime that is civilian and it has formal democratic institutions, but incumbents abuse the state to stay in power. So when Democrats remade the rules to favor their side in 2020 voting, that's not an abuse of power. When Democratic judges invalidate the decisions of you know, the, the will of the people, all right, when the majority of the people vote in something like Proposition 187, and then Democratic judges uh, decree that it's illegal and they invalidate it. Right, that's not abuse. You need to understand that. Not, not abuse. They're just uh, looking out for, for what is best for us. So when the deep state, when the elite you know, overrule us, that's for the best. Recently, Scotland passed a law making everyone in the country God with power over biology. It's called the Gender Recognition Law, and it acknowledges that every person in Scotland has magical powers that can change their own sex at will. So a rapist called Isla Bryson naturally took advantage of that. After arrested, he said he wanted to be in a women's prison because now he's a woman, because he's magic. So Scotland is now ending its policy of letting men serve time in women's prisons. But in this country, we are more backward and insane even than Scotland. So we're doing this. Still, last year, a character called Demetrius Minor, who's convicted of murdering his foster father, 
went to a woman's prison in Jersey where he promptly impregnated two female inmates. He was there because, of course, he said, I'm a woman. Some brave protesters are calling for an end to this grotesque insanity. Activists with the group Get Men Out held a protest at the state capitol in Trenton on Friday. And, of course, Antifa showed up to threaten them. Watch. Jennifer Thomas was one of the protesters getting hassled by Antifa. She joins us tonight. Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on. So you're taking the most unfashionable possible position. You're taking a position contrary to what the White House, the entire news media, and, of course, Antifa want you to say. Why are you doing this? Well, welcome. But thank you for having me on your show. I, I am honored to be here. I respect everything that you're doing for women and, and children. Um, bringing this issue uh, forward. Um, and this is, uh, you know, almost a minor protest with the Antifa. These, they were maybe 10 of them. Usually there's about 50. Um, so they come every time we have a free speech event for women because they want to silence us on, you know, not just... Um, men being housed with women in prison, but on all the issues that um, cover gender. So like the uh, trans, um, the, the, the kids, the, the transgender surgeries that they're giving the kids, the bathroom issues. This group follows me around. You know, I do these speakers corners and they follow me around and try to. Okay, let's get back to the uh, New York Times there. A bit of an awkward segment on Tucker. We don't have those kind of awkward segments here on the 40 show. Okay. Why is democracy under such stress now? The divisiveness inherent in the elevated levels of contemporary polarization. So guess what? Uh, populism is against divisiveness. Elites can only rule if they have a divided country, right? Elites can only dominate if there's tremendous division because elites need to be able to make coalitions with you know certain segments of society. So a segmented, divided society right, enables elite domination. But a populist society where the majority of the people you know, band together to have government of the people, by the people, and for the people, all right, that is kind of quite different from a polarized, divisive society. So what has led to the erosion of support for our democratic institutions? Right, so according to these academics, uh, non-political associations such as labor unions, churches, and bowl bowling leagues, you know, were bringing people from different backgrounds into contact with one another, building trust and teaching tolerance. So what could rebuild trust? Right, how about ending immigration, putting super predators away for a long time, encouraging police to do their job, and you know, imprisoning bad people, and s allow people freedom of association, and eliminate the whole civil rights legislation, the whole civil rights industrial complex, or the civil rights incentives to sue people. Did you know that uh, massive litigation tends to reduce social trust? 
massive amounts of civil rights litigation tends to reduce people's desire to employ, to work with, to hang out people with people who are different. So if you get rid of these, you know, whole, you know, civil rights uh, industrial complex and all the incentives that civil rights, you know, creates, the, the legislation creates to, to sue, right, then then you can restore social trust and you can have far more harmony in society. So get rid of civil rights law. We'll be a lot safer, a lot happier. So castrate your children. That is the message. And some people, bewilderingly, are following that. There has been a huge surge of young people being castrated in the name of transgenderism. Reuters recently reported that in the past few years, 56 minors between the ages of 13 to 17 have undergone genital mutilation in clinics around the country. 776 minors have undergone mastectomies, having their breasts cut off. And more than 14,000 have been poisoned with hormone treatment, which will, in a lot of cases, sterilize them for life, cause them osteoporosis and other problems. So obviously, this is a very dark moment in our history. A civilized country would not put up with that. Hungary has a Child Protection Act, which prevents any of this crap from going on, children from being sexualized. And because it has taken a stand against sexualizing children, Hungary is being sued by over a dozen EU member states. Balash Orban is the political director for Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban, one of the smartest people we've ever talked about politics, and he joins us tonight. Balash, thank you so much for coming on. Okay, so we'll, we'll keep an eye on uh, Tucker's show. And keep an eye on Hungary. Like a lot of great things are coming out of Hungary because the current Hungarian government is run for the benefit of the majority of the people. All right, let's get back to this uh, New York Times article. So apparently the Republicans, instead of focusing on the federal government, they are focusing on the obscure world of election machinery. Come on, they're supposed to just leave that to the Democrats. Republican majorities are passing laws to favor Republicans. Whoa. Our whole system is under assault from the ground up. Republicans are getting interested in the mechanics of voting. Right, this is a systematic attack on state and local election machinery. So if democracy fails in America, it will not be because the majority of Americans is demanding a non-democratic form of government. Well, look, people want a government that's on their side. And uh, the particular procedures don't matter nearly as much, right? Is the government on your side or not? That's what people care about. So these academics says an organized, purposeful majority, minority, right? If it's a populist movement, it would need to be the majority. Seizes strategic positions within the system, subverts the substance of democracy while retaining its shell. So the authoritarian trend is becoming harder to miss, say these academics. So remember Francis Fukuyama wrote... Uh, an essay and a book about the end of history, but over the last uh, 15, 17 years, liberalism has been in decline around the world. You know what? Liberalism has been in decline around the world because it hasn't been as effective in meeting people's needs as alternatives to liberalism, right? Liberalism will rise in power and influence when it is more effective than alternatives at meeting people's needs, keeping them safe, providing them with a higher quality of life. When liberalism deteriorates the quality of their life, 
and increases you know, levels of violence and threat, then people are incentivized to look for alternatives to liberalism. It is human nature to seek personal autonomy, dignity, and self-determination. Yeah, but there is nothing inevitable about the triumph of democracy. Right? Yeah, people want autonomy, safety, dignity, self-determination. The particular you know, legal apparatus that, that accompany that is not so important. Right? People want autonomy, dignity, self-determination. They want a happy life. They want a government that's on their side. And the particulars not going to be nearly as important to them. Right, everybody knows what Fox News is now, New York Times. And this was a devastating blow to, to Fox. I mean, they, they were lying for their audience. And the best quote on this whole controversy with Dominion comes from Tucker Carlson. Right? So he said that uh, Sidney Powell's views, right, the Trump advisor, the Trump lawyer, who is pushing stop the steal? He called her views insane. And then Tucker Carlson added, Our viewers are good people and they believe it. <laughs> right? That's the essence of the Fox position. You know, our viewers are good people. They believe the stop the steal insanity. And don't you deserve to feel good? Don't you deserve to feel pleasure? Like, don't you deserve to feel right about your beliefs, about your enemies, about how you have been cheated? Right? Don't you deserve a safe space to keep believing what you want to believe? Why should Fox News make it harder for you? Right? Fox News creates a particular reality bubble and it defers to the beliefs of its audience. Right? This wasn't Fox telling the audience what to believe. This was the audience telling Fox what Fox needed to believe or at least give the appearance of not, not believing. Good point there, the New York Times. Will this be the India century? Four key questions. Okay, a lot of coverage in the New York Times today about will this be the Indian century, but uh, they never mentioned, they never mentioned IQ, right? The average IQ in India is about 82. So to put that in perspective, the average African American IQ is 85. So on average, Indians have lower IQs than the average African American. So I'm going to go out on a limb and I'm going to wager that this will not be the Indian century, right? You can't dominate the world, right? You can't be prosperous and free. You can't be, you know, incredibly innovative and powerful when you, your country has an average IQ of 82. Oh man, Don Willis says I've given an uninspired reading and interpretation and he's turning back into the Bruins game. Oh, how he wounds me. But it, it's crazy. You have all this New York Times analysis, you know, paragraph upon paragraph, torrents of thousands of words on whether or not India will rule the 21st century and what India will need to do to rule the 21st century. And did you know what India needs to do to rule the 21st century? They need to get more women into the workforce. They need to get more women with higher education. Right? If, if only do they do that, then they'd stand a chance, supposedly, of dominating the 21st century. Well, it's really hard to dominate the 21st century when your country has an average IQ of 82. Right? Uh, the average IQ in China is about 105. Average IQ in Singapore is about 108. In Japan, South Korea, again, about 105. In the United States, it's about 98. 
India with an average IQ of 82 is not going to rule the world. Who do I like better, Tucker or Prager? I... The, the, it's just uh, depends on the issue, depends on the day, depends on the moment, depends on the event. So I don't look to either of them for wisdom, but they are useful for you know, providing me something to leap on, to, to leverage on, to make a point on, or to at least just like catch my breath. All right. I, I'm like broadly sympathetic with the, the, you know, the broader strokes of their, their politics. So when I need to catch a breath to you know, gather myself for my next thoughts, all right, then you know, I'll play some Prager or some, some Tucker Carlson, but I would not look to either for wisdom. Who is the more interesting, Dennis, Dennis Prager or Dennis Dale? Uh, depends on the day, depends on the moment, depends on the situation. I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't rule either one as particularly more interesting. So a good, uh, good rejoinder here from Vox on this idea that the war is getting worse and worse. Here's Vox saying the war is getting better and better which does seem to be overall a dominant perspective on the left. So the right experiences reality is getting worse and worse. The left, because they dominate all our major institutions, they think the world is getting uh, worse and worse. Bro, you said Chinese had crap engineers, mostly morons. Now they have an average IQ of 105. Come on, bro. Well, they can both be true. China has a lousy educational system, right? Even engineers have to spend about a third of their time studying the works of Chairman Mao. Only about one out of seven Chinese engineering grads you know, have the stuff to make it in an engineering position outside of China. The raw material is pretty good there in China, but the system is absolute crap. As opposed to, say, American public education, where we, you know, when you account for results by race, we get practically the highest rates in the world. Like, uh, Africans in America are about the richest Africans in the world. Africans in America are the most educated Africans in the world. Africans in America have the you know highest educational and income results of any Africans in the world. Uh, Asians in America pretty much you know make more money, have higher educational attainment than Asians elsewhere in the world. Chinese people don't even watch the Luke Ford stream. China is wasting its talent. China is wasting its talent. Uh, China has a communist system that does not incentivize the best of people. Yeah, Xi Jinping needs to watch this show. <laughs> Imagine how much better he could be. No one in Washington seemed to follow up on it. was presented as so many news stories are backward. Russia, Russia. But here's the actual point of the story. The Biden administration just admitted that there is, and we're quoting, American nuclear technology in Ukraine at a power plant, and apparently that plant has fallen under Russian control. So what exactly is this sensitive nuclear technology that belongs to the United States? Why wasn't it removed before the war? Is, does it have offensive capabilities? And isn't this all completely crazy and dangerous? Joe Ken is a former U.S. Army Special Forces officer. He is running for Congress from Washington State in the upcoming cycle. He joins us tonight. Joe, thanks so much for coming on. So no one is asking the obvious question, which is what could. Yeah, so I agree with with Tucker that we shouldn't be sending Ukraine tens of billions of dollars and weapons. 
I agree with Tucker that we should be restricting immigration. I agree with Tucker that we need law, more uh, law and order, more law enforcement. We need to put you know more bad guys in prison. Right, but let's get a contrary perspective here from the left-wing publication Vox. Which isn't to say that the record of progress is one of unending wins. For every problem it solved, the lack of usable energy in the pre-fossil fuel days, for instance, it often created a new one, like climate change. But just as climate change is being addressed primarily through innovation that has drastically reduced the price of clean energy, so progress tends to be the best route to solving the problems that progress itself can create. Though historians still argue over what the writer Jason Crawford calls the roots of progress, the fundamental swerve was the belief that, after eons of relatively little meaningful change, the future could actually be different and better. But the so, aren't you curious why people on the right see the world as just deteriorating and falling apart? And it's the dominant strand, perhaps the dominant strand of thinking on the left, is that the world's getting better and better. Why? Consumerism that risks overtaking us erodes that belief and undercuts the policies that give it life. The biggest danger we face today, if we care about actually making the future a more perfect place, isn't that industrial civilization will choke on its own exhaust, or that democracy will crumble, or that AI will rise up and overthrow us all. It's that we will cease believing in the one force that raised humanity out of tens of thousands of years of general misery. The very idea of progress. How progress... So, yeah, traditionalist people on the right tend to think things were better in the past. Uh, people on the left think uh, things are getting better and that we can have new institutions, you know, new types of families, do things in a new way, make everything much, much better. So the left tends to look to the future as the happy place. The right tends to look to the past as the happy place. ...the problems we didn't know were problems. Progress may be about where we're going, but it's impossible to understand without returning to where we've been. So let's take a trip back to the foreign country that was the early years of the 19th century. In 1820, according to data compiled by the historian Mihail Motsos, about three quarters of the world's population earned so little that they could not afford even a tiny living space, some heat, and hopefully... And what does Luke Ford think? All right, do I think the world's getting better or worse? I'm not sure. I, I'm right in the middle. I don't have a knee-jerk response. I think some things were better in the past. Okay, you had more family solidarity. You had, you know, higher levels of social trust. You had more coherent societies, right? So a whole lot of things were better in the past. I think morality was better in the past. On the other hand, many forms of technology are, are better now. So, you know, we, we've learned some things and uh, we've, uh, we've got more regulation now. And in many ways... The increased regulation is for the good. I think it's a good idea that people wear seatbelts. Uh, I'm open to the idea that electric cars may reduce pollution. So I'm in the, the middle, right? I I just try to understand both sides, right, rather than coming out with a lot of definitive hot takes on my own. Luke, the centrist, Luke Ford. Radical moderate, Luke Ford. <laughs> So, I mean, you know my overall views, right? I believe different people have different gifts. I'm at ease with inequality. 
all right, uh, my you know highest priority is not you know democratic institutions. My highest priority is you know getting a government that's on the side of the majority of the population. So, in those ways, you would call me right wing. Enough food to stave off malnutrition. It was a state that we would now call extreme poverty, except that for most people back then, it wasn't extreme. It was simply life. Yeah, Ricardo, man, he's got a gift. Luke, I've never met a position I wouldn't institutionally adopt. I mean, it's true. There's almost nothing that is human that is foreign to me. Uh, you know, genocide or you know, molesting kids. Like, okay, that's totally foreign to me. Um, torturing people is foreign to me. So, um, you know, the LGBTQ thing is, is foreign to me. But uh, overall, yeah, in certain situations, I can, you know, understand almost anything. I th feel like I can understand anyone. I can understand where Chairman Mao was coming from. I can understand where Joseph Stalin was coming from. I can understand where Napoleon Bonaparte was coming from. I can understand where, you know, Adolf Hitler was coming from. I think I can understand where Joe Biden is coming from. So my primary interest, and perhaps if I have a gift, is that, you know, I have an ability to empathize and understand where different people uh, are coming from. Glad to know that Luke draws the line at genocide and rape. What do I think of the passing of Max Hardcore? So Max was an incredibly uh, charismatic guy. Right. Max was an innovative pornographer. Uh, Max, you know, took his hardcore to, you know, the hardcore limit. Uh, Max was an interesting fellow. He was like tightly coiled, a uh, lot of a uh, lot of energy, willing to, you know, push the boundaries of his art. And he just simply wanted to be left alone to do what he loved. Right. He just simply wanted to left alone to create art and to bring people pleasure. But, you know, the government would harass him and prosecute him. And people would say he was a bad man for making his hardcore productions. I, I didn't hear homosex on that list of red lines. I did say that. I said the LGBTQ thing was completely foreign to me. Max Hardcore is dead, bro. Innovative. He was a borderline pedo, but... Uh, Max, wow, he was, uh, he wasn't a boring pornographer, right? He wasn't just, uh, you know, go through the motions, you know, just churn out mediocre productions. Like he really took his, his art to the limit and you can agree or you can disagree, but he committed, right? Don't you just hate people like me? Don't really commit to one position like wishy-washy centrists who are just all empathizing with different perspectives. So Max Hardcore was the anti-Luke Ford. Right? There's nothing lukewarm about Max Hardcore. He, he wasn't just about, oh, I can empathize with this and I can empathize with that. Right? When Max had an insight, right? he took it to the limit. Max Hardcore was the pornographer's pornographer. All right? He, he committed. Right? He went all the way. He didn't compromise. He didn't, oh, I need to water down my vision so that I'll be more popular, so that I'll be more socially accepted, so that people will talk more positively about me at church. He didn't submit to the tyranny of his peers who said, oh, Max, you're taking things too far. All right, Max had a vision. 
and he lived and he died for his vision, man. What matters here for the story of progress isn't the fact that the overwhelming majority of humankind lived in destitution. It's that this was the norm, and had been the norm since essentially forever. Poverty. Luke is the king of rudderless punditry. It's right. You're absolutely right. I'm just like constantly changing my mind. Uh, very few <laughs> firm positions. Uh, I just try to understand where different people are coming from. And I think sometimes I can get into a groove where I can, you know, piggyback off other people's ideas and then either undercut them or, you know, provide some useful analysis. So there are certain public figures like a, a Richard Spencer or a Dennis Prager who are kind of in my wheelhouse and, and I have things to say that uh, may be of some interest to some people. But overall, I am not important. All right, your 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 meaning and purpose in life for ninety nine percent of the population should not come from politics. It doesn't really matter that much who's president of the United States, who wins an election. Right, your morality, your purpose, your meaning, your excitement, the inner core of your life should not come from politics or punditry. I'm not important. Pundits aren't important. You know, radio talk show hosts aren't important. They're fun. Right. I enjoy the Dallas Cowboys. The Dallas Cowboys are not important. I enjoy the Los Angeles Dodgers. I recognize the Los Angeles Dodgers are not important. I enjoy the TV show Seinfeld. The TV show Seinfeld is not important. So I have an esoteric interest in, in politics and in culture and, and religion. But, you know, who wins, who loses the next election? Like, you know, are the Democrats the real racists? Right. That's not very important. So pundits and uh, live streamers and uh, nationally syndicated radio talk show hosts, they make a living by inflating their importance. So one way you can tell whether a, a pundit or a talk show host is, you know, toxic or, you know, a decent person is are they trying to inflate their importance? Right? Are they claiming that they have all sorts of revolutionary insights into life? such as there's a civil war going on all around us. We're becoming like Nazi Germany. We're becoming like the Soviet Union. All right, those are insights that you don't get from simply observing reality, right? You have to have someone who sees more than what's there to tell you such things. And that inflates the value of someone who can provide you with those insights that reality cannot provide you. But the pundit, the guru who provides you with these you know, stunning cutting edge insights about what's really going on in the world. And this is why you need them, to show you things that you can't see, right? These insights that make them more important, they tend to be wrong. It tends to be toxic, tends to be bad for you. So this show is not uh, the most compelling show. There are a lot of you know better live streamers, better pundits, better talk show hosts, people who are much more riveting and entertaining, but they are riveting and entertaining and compelling because they're toxic. Right? A lot of things that are toxic are riveting, entertaining, and compelling and will get you very excited. So for the vast majority of people who consume this show, it's not going to affect them. <laughs> not one way or another. Uh, a minority of people at times will get some benefit, but I think very few people are going to be diminished by this show. Right? It's not going to send you off in antisocial, destructive directions. Luke could never settle on just one woman when there are so many female viewpoints out there waiting to be considered and empathized with, usually in the back of a rusted-out Dutson. <laughs> it was a, I didn't call it a rusted-out Dutson. I called it a, a symposium. 
Ricardo says, sometimes I find my viewpoints developing a coherence that unsettles me, so I mix it up. Max Little was a pastor at one point. You mean Max Harcourt? No, I don't think so, but he was religious. Indecisive forward. Well, reality, right? It, it knocks you all around. I mean, don't you have the experience of uh, just kind of being embarrassed about the things that you said and claimed and did? Like, I... I <laughs> I look back and think, my God, what a total jerk I was, what a total a-hole I was. You know, think about how completely wrong I was. Think about the all the ways that I misread those situations. Think about how my selfishness and carelessness you know, hurt the lives of people around me. Right? If I just retain a sense of how my you know, selfishness and carelessness, self-centeredness, narcissism, you know, my ego, my desire for attention, my you know, desire for pleasure has, has damaged other people, it, uh, it does have a calming effect. No one has ever read Mein Kampf because of this show. Wow. No one has ever damaged themselves with Mein Kampf because of this show. They had to go outside of this show to start damaging themselves. So when Casey discussed Mein Kampf with me, he didn't say anything that was damaging. He didn't say anything that would destroy his life or get him fired, you know, you know, cause massive turbulence. He had to go outside this show to say and write and do things on his own that turned his life upside down when he was simply talking to me about it. You know, all his comments were within the Overton window. So, no, I don't think people blow up their life on this show. Or I take... Now, I've taken more and more measures over the past three years to minimize the, the chances of that. Now, I don't want to make the show, you know, so safe that there's no way anyone could possibly misuse it. You can misuse anything. You can misuse God. You can misuse religion. You can misuse water. You can misuse exercise. You can you know, misuse beef and a knife and, and guns. All right. So I'm not going to you know try to so completely sanitize the show that it can never be misused. But I would say overall, for most people who consume this show, it has no effect. And for a minority, it has a positive effect. And I think very few people go out there and blow up their lives because of this show. I mean, I recognize that 99% of the people who want to come on the show, that this will be very bad for them, and I don't bring them on. Luke Ford has provided A-grade entertainment for over six years now. Forty and Hunter would make good partners on a TV cop show. I saw Max Hardcore at a music trade show once in L.A. who was very disgusting-looking in person. Well, when, when I knew him, he was much more vibrant and alive, so perhaps perhaps the years were were uh, unkind to, to Max as they are to many of us. His uh, fact about the great fact might be this. Without it, chances are I wouldn't be writing this article and you wouldn't be listening to it. Between 10,000 BCE and 1700, the average global... Wait, what do you think of my point that it's useful to analyze gurus and, and pundits uh, on the basis of does what they have to say make them more important? So J.F. Garapi published a book about how I think, you know, AI or some version of it could destroy the world. Right? That's a claim for importance. Uh, Dennis Prager says there's a civil war that's raging around us. Uh, Tucker Carlson night after night saying the elites are trying to screw you over. Right, so these are all pundits who are making claims for preeminence. They're making claims for the importance of what they have to say. They are, you know, offering you secular forms of salvation. And but 
on contrast, I come here and say, not only do I have no salvation, none of them do either. The core of what matters in your life is your family <laughs> and your friends, and that elections don't matter. It's fun to analyze them. It's fun to try to figure out what's going on in the world around us. It's a good thing to try to make a, a difference in the world, but it's very hard to do. You know, reality is incredibly complicated, but it's a lot of fun to get together with your friends and discuss what's, uh, what's going on and to, you know, challenge each other, right? This is healthier than for, for most people, I would think, than playing video games. It's a social outlet where we can compare our thinking. There's a new film called Malibu Road. The director was interviewed by Robert Stark. Okay. But what do you think of that, that analysis? Is the guru, is the preacher, is the pastor, is the talk show host, is the live streamer right, elevating himself, elevating his importance, his preeminence, you know, the, the necessity of uh, you know, joining with him? Of, is he offering you, you know, various forms of salvation? Is he saying that you're a victim, but he's going to fight for you? Is he saying that, you know, everyone, everyone else, all the institutions, your, your country, right, the elites, they're all aligned against you, but I'm going to fight for you, right? People who put out that message, which are the overwhelming majority of right-wing pundits and talk show hosts, right, are putting out a toxic message. They are enhancing themselves, their own importance, their own incomes, their own status, their own prestige, their own egos at your expense, so someone who says what's most important in your life is your, is your family, your friends, uh, finding you know, satisfying work and uh, hobbies, right, is also saying, I don't have much importance, which I think is true, but uh, isn't exactly you know, a thrilling platform for a talk show host. It's a real shame that Bo Hunter died. Imagine how much more he could have gotten away with than Hunter Let's get a bit more from Vox. BCE and 1700, the average global population growth rate was just 0.04% per year. And that wasn't because human beings weren't having babies. They were simply dying in great numbers at birth, giving birth, in childhood from now preventable diseases, and in young adulthood from now preventable wars and violence. We were stuck in the Malthusian trap named after the 18th century English cleric and economist Thomas Malthus. Okay, Fox News says, new bombshell report in Hunter Biden investigation. I don't know what it is, but I'm going to warrant that it's not really that important. <laughs> it's a bombshell report, all right? It's going to compel your attention. But most of what the news talks about is not important, and most things that are important are not talked about in the news. Dennis Prager says the significant are really famous and the famous are really significant. The trap argues that any increase in food production or other resources that allowed the population to grow was quickly consumed by that increased population, which then led to food shortages and population decline. It's striking that one of the few real spikes in wages and standard of living in pre-industrial times came in the aftermath of the Black Death, which killed off perhaps 30% of Europe's population. Those who survived were able to command higher wages to work empty land. 
but a deadly pandemic is no reasonable person's idea of a sustainable economic growth program. Viewed from one angle, human population before the Industrial Revolution was in an ecological balance of the sort we might aim to preserve if humanity were just another wild species plowing its environmental niche. So anyway, interesting Vox article saying the doomers are wrong about humanity, that uh, humanity's future is quite bright. That's it. Take care. Bye-bye.